This is Peace Talks, making peace day to day. If you want peace, if you want to be happy, then develop a heart that is ready for anything. A special hour with people whose life's work is resolving conflict peacefully. That's the power of empathy in those difficult situations. It allows us to see anger and rage as a huge opportunity for compassion. Useful ideas and techniques for bringing more peace to our lives and the lives of others. I could have skillfully said with my two children, it's fine for you to be mad at your sister. Find another way of expressing that feeling than hitting her. Stay tuned for Peace Talks, making peace day to day. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? Give us the balance to live simply, sowing the seeds of peace. Humans are drawn to stories. As soon as children begin to develop language, they beg adults to tell them a story. Stories let us touch our emotions, and they sometimes inspire us to act. Can stories help create a more peaceful world? New Mexico school social worker and professional storyteller Sarah Malone thinks so, and told us why she created a CD called Peace Tales for Kids. I think how we tell our stories can have an incredible impact, not just on ourselves in terms of how we feel, but how we live our lives, how we relate to others, on the personal, the family, the community, and the global level. For example, right now in the United States, we've been having a national storytelling, so to speak, about what's going on in our nation and in the world. And the story is being told largely in terms of fear and terror and war. And though the word peace is used, there isn't a whole lot of description of what does it mean to be a peacemaker with your neighbor, with your child, with your friend. And I happen to work in a school, and I've seen lots of evidence of children who immediately, because the story that they hear more and more and more, and not only hear but see in the news every day and you see pictures in the newspaper, it's a story being told from the framework of fear and terror and war that it's hard for them to imagine the story being told from a peaceful perspective. So I think uh, stories can be used very much so to help explain what does it mean to be a peacemaker, how can we view what's going on in a different way, how can we relate more positively even when there's stress and tension and fear and anger with everyone around us, starting locally and moving globally. Well, are you all talking about changing the way the story of, for example, the conflicts in the world is told? Are you saying that we can tell that in a more peaceful way? Are you saying we just need to talk more about ways to negotiate rather than be violent? I think both, because in order to negotiate, you have to frame the story differently. If, for example, two combatants sit down and they're going to try and negotiate, and they're stuck each with their version of the story, then little negotiation will take place. Both of them need to be able to look at that story differently in order to make progress. Let's finish up with a track from your CD, Sarah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about this story? This story is called A Tale for All Seasons, and it's by a German um, writer, Kurt Kauter. What is the weight of a snowflake? 
the song thrush asked the white dove. The white dove pondered the question and finally responded, Nothing more than nothing, I should say. Exactly, said the song thrush. Why, let me tell you the most wonderful story. One day I was in the forest when it began to snow. It was a beautiful snow, quiet, no wind, no violence, as in a dream. I sat on a branch close to the trunk of a fir tree, and as I had nothing better to do, I decided that I would count the snowflakes as they landed on my branch, and so I did. I counted 3,555,110 snowflakes. And then, when the 3,555,111th snowflake fell, nothing more than nothing, as you say, the branch broke. So saying, the song thrush flew away. Now the white dove, who since Noah's time has been something of an authority on the matter, pondered the story and finally concluded, Maybe, just maybe, we are but one voice short of having peace in the world. Storyteller Sarah Malone. Information about her CD, Peace Tales for Kids, is available online at peacetales.org. The proceeds go to two nonprofit groups, the Women's Commission for Refugee Women and Children and Good Radio Shows, Inc., which produces the Peace Talk series. What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding? I'm Suzanne Kreider. This is a Peace Talk special called Making Peace Day to Day. For our monthly program on public radio station KUNM in Albuquerque, we talk with people whose life's work is peacemaking and conflict resolution. Our goal is to put listeners in touch with ideas and techniques they can apply to conflict scenarios that challenge them every day, in their families, in the workplace, at school, or anywhere else in the world. Our program today features highlights from some of these conversations, brief excerpts that we feel are universally useful. Mother Teresa said, If there is no peace in the world today, it is because there is no peace in the family. Help your families to become centers of compassion and forgive constantly and so bring peace. How can we promote peace with our children We talked it over with Dr. Victor Lecherva, a physician who has worked in violence prevention for many years and is currently medical director of the New Mexico Department of Health's Family Health Bureau. Victor says early in life, we need to teach our children what he called emotional fluency, giving children the vocabulary to match their emotions of mad, sad, glad, and afraid will make it easier for them to label their feelings and talk about them. As babies begin to get to the place where they're becoming verbal is we need to teach them a word for the experience they're having in their body. Sure is frustrating, Juan, when those blocks don't stay where you want, as Juan at age two and a half is flinging the blocks all over the playroom because he's upset that his tower didn't stay up. 
or kind of scary up there on the slide, isn't it, Mario? But exciting at the same time as Mario is looking down this big thing, trying to decide whether he really wants to slide down. So we give them a word for what they're experiencing in their body. Between the ages of three and five, and even better if we can do it in more than one language, we give them a lot of words to express the continuum of feelings. So I'm annoyed, I'm irritated, I'm bugged, I'm peeved, I'm mad, I'm angry, I'm raging, I'm really upset. We give them lots of different words so they can express the varying hues of a given specific emotion. But some adults don't have that much fluency themselves. So what about for our listeners who really don't have a wide range of of emotional fluency? What do you recommend for them to get started? Well, I think part of it is to just become in touch with some very basic notions. The first basic notion I would say is that all feelings are okay, all behaviors are not. For example, I could have skillfully said with my two children, it's fine for you to be mad at your sister. Find another way of expressing that feeling than hitting her. The second thing, I think, is to begin to reflect on um, our own use of the language. When we um, yell it at our child and say, you stupid jerk, you spilled the milk again, that has a real different flavor than I feel upset that the milk got spilled when I asked you to move the glass in from the edge of the table and you chose to ignore me. Let's clean it up because we need to get out of here. We need to get the morning scene going or whatever. Real different feel when we use that I feel followed by an emotion word. Whenever you use you, you put the other person on the defensive, they feel attacked, and so on. If you start it with just, I feel upset, I feel scared. Another a typical example would be the toddler who gets lost in the grocery store or in Walmart, and uh, you see this reaction all the time. The first reaction of the parents is angry. You know, where were you? Don't you do that? Don't you ever do that? Blah, blah, blah. What's really going on was, gee, I was scared. I was afraid something happened to you. Okay, so let's slow that down. How do parents recognize that they're really angry, and what do they do right in that moment? Okay, well, uh, often we will notice in our bodies that there's a change in our bodies because, for example, with anger, it's based on the fight-or-flight response. There's this hormonal cocktail in our bodies where our energy gets escalated. Our pulse goes up, our pupils dilate, the uh, blood goes to the big muscles of of our system to prepare us to run away or to fight. So we can notice those changes to notice where we first hold that tension. For some people, it's the back of their neck. For some people, it's their stomach. For me, it's my jaw. I know that when my jaw starts to get tight, that's a signal to me that I'm going, that I'm, that, that my anger meter, if you will, is beginning to move from not angry at all to being bugged, annoyed, irritated. And I want to stop it as early in that cycle, or I want to deal with it. It'd be a better way. I want to dance with it as early in that cycle as possible because it's easier then to take a deep breath or sometimes the the most skillful thing to do is to do something to improve the physiology. Gee, everybody's hungry. Let's let's take a bite to eat. Or on the weekend I'll tell my I'll tell my girls, Hey Dad, I'm getting cranky, I need my power nap and they'll say, Go for it, Dad, go for it, you know, because they know that if I get that twenty minutes by myself to just chill out, even when they were younger that I'd be, I'd be in a much better place emotionally. So, so that's, that's the first piece. The second thing is that you can develop a signal in the family. We used to use, we didn't do it all the time, but we used to use just the feedback of tone because one of the things besides the changes in the body that happens is the tone of voice changes. 
So anybody had permission to use tone. Actually, my younger daughter, who's a bit of an entrepreneur, had me paying her a quarter for every time she had to say tone to me. And it could just be a nasty thing like, come on, Rosa, get your coat. Just that nasty edge to my voice. But I was trying to work on that. And so I would simp- – so she'd say, geez, dad, tone, that's 50 cents so far this morning, you know, like that. <laughs> it was a way of lightening it up, but it also reflected the value that we had or that we were trying to create in the family – which is that we treat each other with loving kindness and respect as much as possible. So you don't have to go into a big, long story. Anybody can say tone to each other. Like I say, it doesn't work. None of this stuff works all the time. But it's, uh, it, it's a way to, uh, to have a little fun with it. Let me give you a difficult situation to respond to. Most of us have been in this situation. You're in a store or you're in a parking lot. You hear a child scream, and you turn, and you see a parent hitting or harming their child. What do you do in that situation? The first is that you need to be able to approach that individual if you choose to intervene in a calm-centered manner. You have to keep your own center. If you're going to go over there and yell at this person, then you're going to just be generating more hostility and more negativity and more violence in the world, essentially. The second, the B, is to blend with the frustration that the parent is having in that moment. Gee, I remember when my kids were that age, it was so frustrating to try and get anything done or something like that. I remember how exhausted I was all the time trying to take the kids grocery shopping was was a horror show. Somehow you blend, you acknowledge why that parent at that particular moment is not at their personal best. <clears throat> then the C is you offer the possibility of change. Um, you say, oh, you know, when I remember when uh, what I used to do was, you know that junk food they always want you to buy at the end? Well, you buy it at the beginning, and then they can be eating it while you're doing your shopping. Or I used to take out a little toy for each aisle in the supermarket so they'd stay entertained. And then the D is to offer to actually do something concrete. Uh, if I'm with my kids, I will say, would you like us to watch the baby for a little bit? We can play with the baby for a while while you finish up your shopping. Or do you have some things on your list that I can get for you? And my experience, having done this dozens of times, is that most people will refuse the offer of help at that particular moment. But you've already changed, uh, you've already changed the dynamics of, of what's happening just, just by your being that kind presence. But has it happened, or I'm sure it does happen, where the person just refuses? You're into the bee trying to blend, and they're saying, mind your own business. That actually has never happened to me. Well, one time in Disneyland, at the end of the day, when, <laughs> when everybody was exhausted, and, the, and, the, and you could see these families scattered about trying to hold on for the fireworks that are going to happen at the end of the day, and this one guy uh, was... was you know, just short of whacking his toddler. I mean, he was just, the kid was sc- screaming and holding on to his leg, and I tried all my usual stuff, and he just stonewalled me, just gave me this fairly hostile look. But actually just walking over to him altered the situation because then the, the mother picked the kid up. She already had another kid in one arm, but she picked the other kid up. Dr. Victor Lacherva with the New Mexico Department of Health. He's also the author of Pathways to Peace, 40 Steps to a Less Violent America, and most recently, World Words, Global Reflections to Awake the Spirit. What's so funny about these love and understanding? As children grow, the years from 11 to 14 can be among the toughest and can be a time when many conflicts surface. We spoke with two New Mexico mediators who work in the schools, Lily Irvin Vitella and Ellie Dendal, 
and with Elena Carnes, a junior at Sandia Prep High School. Ellie Dendal says offering middle school youth access to an experienced mediator counters what she felt was the overwhelming message that violence is the only way to resolve conflict. I think, unfortunately, what the kids see on television and in the movies is just so un- unrealistic that everything resorts to that. And um, when kids are given choices like you know mediation and being able to talk about it, I mean, it's so obvious that that once the mediation is coming to a close i mean you you see that sort of youthful i'm 11 i'm 12 i'm not you know i don't have a you know big weight on my shoulders do you see that sort of dissipate and and giving them choices just like what what lily said i think is is one of the better options because a lot of times kids you know say i just want to fight him or fight her and i say well that's your choice and by giving them that um, option that, yeah, if, if that's a choice that you make, but you have to own the consequences also. And when you come to mediation, that's your choice also, because it's totally voluntary. And if you want to be here to resolve the problem, then that's your choice. Nobody's making you be here. So by giving them choices, and, and I think by modeling good conflict resolution skills is going to be the way that we're going to teach kids more that, that all conflict does not have to resort, resort in violence, and, and that conflict is a natural um, occurring event in our lives. Well, I'm curious, how often do they choose violence? I think there's violence in the schools every day, unfortunately. Not in every single school, but, um, you know, since I deal a lot with the assistant principals, I hear about kids getting suspended. And and um, these days, they're a lot, I think they come down on kids a lot harder than they, than they did before um, for violence and also for instigating violence. Elena? Ironically, I don't think that violence is really empowering at all. Even though it's a physical act, it really just drains you so much emotionally and physically. And when you're able to talk it out and find a resolution, especially on your own, it really just makes you feel so much better and gives you so much more self-worth. Lily? I was just thinking as you're talking that, um, you know, the way we raise our kids as a community has a big impact on how violent we are or we're not. And, you know, I think that there's a level of violence that goes on that's recognized and nipped in the bud, and there's a low level of violence that's pervasive. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, I think the emotional violence um, that occurs in schools um, is just, it's so soul-crushing. I mean, kids carry that with them, and it affects them. It affects their ability to perform in school. It affects their relationships with the adults around them. Mm-hmm. So what do you mean by the emotional violence? With boys, I think what it looks like is um, just that that need to measure up, that need to be macho. You talked earlier about people identifying themselves and growing in sexual orientation. I can't think of a kid who would feel comfortable coming out in middle school because of the emotional violence that they would that they could anticipate reasonably and not and also the physical violence that they could anticipate um so there's there's still very much stereotypes about what people have to be and if you don't measure up to those stereotypes there's an emotional consequence you'll be ostracized and at a time when people have such a tremendous need for belonging it's just devastating let's talk about bullies elena you've gone to school for several years with some of the same kids Mm -hmm. do bullies ever grow out of that behavior or do you see the same kids um, intimidating others you usually see 
a reoccurrence um, among behaviors. But as they grow up and they find themselves, a lot of times they do grow out of it because I can remember there was a bully who was in my fourth grade class who used to threaten to beat up the third grade class, which was my class. And, you know, she, I saw her not so long ago and she apologized for being that way. And she really grew up and she learned other ways and she learned to accept herself and she was just going through a hard time emotionally with her family her parents were getting divorced her sister had moved away to college and it was just a difficult time for her and unfortunately no she had no one to turn to that she felt that she could in the schools or anything and it's good that there's programs like this because maybe she would have been able to and she could have gotten help sooner. Yeah, that's lovely that you got an apology. Yeah, yeah. it was. <laughs> that's a success story. Lily Irvin Vitella, does mediation work with bullies? I guess it depends on what you're measuring work by. Like if, if you're measuring it by, hey, the outcome is this person is completely transformed and no longer bullies a bully, that's hard to tell. But I think that even in cases where somebody has a lot vested in violent behavior and in taking power over people. I believe in people's capacity to change and to be better than what they are currently doing to be their best selves. And I think mediation is an opportunity to be your best self. And so sometimes all we do is plant a seed, which is that, hey, there's some other option, but that doesn't mean that they're not going to choose the option that they're more used to. You know, I have a niece who's in middle school who's been the victim of bullying. Um, and it's, it's, you know, I see how devastating it is in all of her relationships, not just her relationships with friends. And for a while, nobody was quite sure what was going on until she came home with a huge welt on her face where she'd been belted in the face um, by another student on the bus. And unfortunately, the school was like, well, it's not our jurisdiction. It occurred on the bus. And there was this whole, like, oh, my gosh, conflict. We don't want to deal with it. There was this fear around conflict. And so I think that Whenever we're looking at ways to work with youth in conflict, we have to be saying, what's our responsibility as adults, whether we have a program or not? How can we help people deal with their problems in a way that it's taking some responsibility and not saying, hey, it's just your problem. It's a community problem. How was that situation resolved? Unfortunately, it's not a happy story. It wasn't resolved well. Um, The bullying continued and continued and continued. Um, I actually went to my niece's school with her and said, hey, we need to talk about what's going on. They weren't willing to talk with me about it. My sister wasn't able to get off of work to go talk with them about it. Um, But at least they were aware, the teachers were aware and informed, and so they kind of kept an eye out on it. And I think, honestly, mostly she had to deal with it on her own. She had to learn new ways to make friendships, and so that way she had a clique that she felt protected in because she wasn't getting the support she needed, which is disappointing. Elena Carnes, can you tell us a story of a situation where two students did resolve a conflict on their own? Maybe they didn't use the mediation steps, but there was a conflict, and over some period of time, they resolved Mm -hmm. it on their own. Well, I don't remember why this happened. There was an issue of some sort, but um, a kid was in art class. They were arguing in an art class, and uh, they shoved a paintbrush at the other person's nose. Ouch. Yeah. And, you know, there was blood everywhere, but somehow the teacher didn't find out about what had happened. And, you know, typically that would result in, you know, more violence. But the best friend of the person who um, actually committed the violence act to uh, the boy, he 
came along and you know he was like well what's going on between the two of you and they resolved it in that way so it was good that you know they weren't bickering heads you know there was someone who was a peer but also was not directly involved so he could step back and sort of um, resolve it help mediate what the problem was and they worked it out in that way and uh, to this day they're actually best friends so it worked out. That's Elena Carnes who survived her middle school years and is now at Sandia Prep. We also heard from Lily Irvin Vitella, the director of the New Mexico Center for Dispute Resolution in Albuquerque, and Ellie Dendal, who coordinates the school mediation program in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm Suzanne Kreider. Later this hour, which communication techniques help relieve conflict in the workplace? And next, after just hearing from mediators, we'll turn to a meditation teacher for tips on making peace with ourselves in troubled times. You're listening to Peace Talks, making peace day to day. This is Peace Talks, making peace day to day. I'm Suzanne Kreider, host of a monthly program on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution that airs on public radio in New Mexico. We're sharing some of the best conversations from our program with you today. In recent years, world events have made it hard for many of us to achieve inner peace. Before a studio audience at the University of New Mexico, we talked about that challenge with meditation teacher Eric Kolvig who told us he was already a victim of post-traumatic stress syndrome and that the attacks of September 11, 2001, reactivated it. We asked him how his meditation practice helps him deal with all the worry in our turbulent world. One of my teachers once said to me, if you want peace, if you want to be happy, then develop a heart that is ready for anything. Easy to say, but, uh, but I think for, for me in part... Developing inner peace in challenging times, keeping our heart open in hell, which sometimes we're called to do, means really engaging fear, really engaging the anxiety itself immediately. Engaging the anxiety. When I get anxiety, boy, I'm sweating, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> my heart is pounding. Right. How do I engage that? Well, you know, it's a, Franklin Roosevelt, when he first became president, his very first words to this country are the ones that are most memorable We have nothing to fear but fear itself. This was in the middle of the Great Depression. A lot of people were suffering. In order to get past fear, to work our way through fear, we have to engage it directly to see what it is. Fear is always about something in the future. It's never about something that's happening in the moment. The future doesn't exist. Fear is a projection of something that may or may not happen. And when you see that, if you can see you're simply projecting something into the future, you don't have to believe it. (laughs) You can say, I don't need to believe this. And to come back to whatever your present situation, no matter how challenging it is, by reducing the fear, your present situation is much more workable. So we're basically making it up. We're making up these thoughts about it, but are we making up the body's response? I think the body follows the mind, actually. 
Not always. You know, if you have uh, if you have a uh, a rattlesnake coiled right in front of you, the body will respond and the mind will respond, and that's a kind of useful fear to protect ourselves. But to to distinguish between a reasonable kind of fear where we're where we need to back off from a charging bull, uh, and and the kind of fear where we're projecting a kind of future that doesn't exist. Just one little example is uh, years ago I was doing some deep therapeutic work and I was working with some severe trauma that I had as a child. And uh, as a result of doing that work, uh, terror actually came up. And not just in the therapeutic situation. So I was driving to work one day and I was experiencing terror. My hair was standing straight up. You know, that there were these waves of energy going through my body. Uh, very intense experience. My mind happened to be strong at that moment, uh, and, uh, and so I knew it was just fear, and I was able to hold it. So as, as I just held fear there and just kept driving, I got to work, and a coworker uh, greeted me and said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I'm experiencing terror right now, but otherwise I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was true. In that moment, I didn't have to believe the terror and so it was possible to feel all the physiological reactions and all of the, uh, the contraction in the mind and say, okay, this is just fear. So eventually it falls away. Mm-hmm. And eventually we're going to get back to this ideal steady state that we call inner peace. Mm-hmm. What is inner peace? Inner peace is an absence of inner conflict. It's an absence of anxiety. It's a quality of, how could I describe it, of being of, of confidence, of calm, of, of, a, of a kind of happiness, and a, and a, and a feeling of simplicity. Um, it's nice, actually, inner peace. <laughs> so how do you help people through meditation to develop confidence and calm? You know, it's basically what we do in our in our spiritual practice is to, is to de- develop two qualities, an open heart and a clear mind. An open heart, basically a heart full of love, is a heart full of acceptance. It's willing to turn toward things without resistance. And you can see that how, how that can be an antidote to anxiety or fear, which is a, which is a resistance in, in the heart. And a clear mind is simply seeing things for what they are, for example, if I know absolutely that I will die, that, that death is certain and that the time of my death is uncertain, and if I come to accept that fact through the clarity of mind of simply seeing this is a truth, uh, the fear of death begins to fall away. I, I, I begin to, to, to simply not to be that concerned about dying. Um, so open heart, clear mind. So let's start with open heart. What's a technique or a strategy that we can use to develop that? Would you like to do a little, just a tiny little meditation in this moment? Sure. So if you would, just close your eyes. And just well, let's, let's start by sending love to yourself. And then if you would, just to silently repeat these words. May I be happy. May I be safe from all danger and harm. May I be healthy in body and mind. May I live with ease and well-being. May I be free. And then if you would just extend that feeling beyond yourself to all beings everywhere, without any discrimination, may all beings be happy. 
uh, that's what we do. We repeat these phrases over and over again. And, uh, and it works. It's very powerful. This particular uh, meditation practice was developed specifically as an antidote to fear. And so if someone is feeling fear or anxiety, um, this practice, if we take it to depth, will just dissolve. And it will also dissolve other forms of aversion, like grief, like hatred, like anger. So it's very useful practice, and it's a practice that I personally did after September 11th, uh, many, many hours of it over the months after that time. And it does dissolve fear. It, it works. So how about if our listeners can't remember all those phrases? What then? It would be enough to wish for themselves and to wish for every person they met, especially the people who cut right in front of them in traffic, you know, and do something dangerous. <laughs> especially the people that they find difficult in their lives, is simply to have the wish, may you be happy. That's enough. So we've talked about inner peace. Now let's talk about the interaction of our inner experience with other people. And this is where it gets tricky. Um, I want to tell you a story about a postal clerk who we have this strange relationship where we really push each other's buttons. And I'll be standing in line and actually trying something like the loving kindness that you mentioned. I, I have this intention to be very kind to this person. But when I get up to the counter, anything I do pushes this guy's buttons, even if it's to help him. Like I'll put the package on the scale, and he'll get really angry and say, put the package on the counter. And, so, and then it just goes into this contagion effect where we're just punching each other's buttons. So talk about how we can maintain inner peace when we're with people who are angry. One of the real keys to our happiness, to our inner peace or inner happiness, is to understand that it's not what happens to us that causes our unhappiness or our suffering. It's how we respond to what is happening. We just don't have control over other people. We don't have control over many of our situations, that we get old, we get sick, we die. The people we love most, we lose often. We don't have control over our circumstances, but what we can learn to do is to respond more and more skillfully. So you might push his buttons. You don't necessarily have to let him push your buttons. And to, and to really notice, what is it about this interaction that's disturbing me? You want him to be nice. He's not nice. So is it possible for you to maintain a stance of friendship and warmth and support for him, even when he's not being nice to you. That's difficult. <laughs> it is. <laughs> that's why, that's why the, uh, the, the one person developing the highest form of love can neutralize the hate of millions. It's learning, learning skillful response. Meditation teacher Eric Kolvig, during our taping of the program, Making Peace with Ourselves Since 9-11. Whether we're clashing with a grumpy postal clerk or someone else, our ability to maneuver through the conflict without resorting to violence depends to a large degree on how we hear and use language. Jorge Rubio is a trainer in the communication approach known as nonviolent communication. Instead of lashing out verbally at someone, nonviolent communication suggests a four-part response that starts with how you feel. For example, I feel frustrated that you didn't return my call because I have a need to be heard. I ask that in the future, you return my call within 24 hours. 
Jorge says connecting with our needs is really at the core of this process. As we use needs, we really try to refer to them as the living energy in a human's heart. So needs are universal values in any human's heart. When I am able to distill my message, to just express to you what is that need of mine, either it is understanding or uh, connection or respect that was not met, it will be easy for you to connect with that need. Conversely, when you're speaking and in the moment you're not having the resources to express your needs clearly and you are in a moment of anger, I hope I can have the ability to translate your message into the underlying needs. See, needs underlying any human action and any human word. And if I'm able to focus on that, then I create what we call empathic connection. And if I create empathic connection, then I am in a world of possibilities where without anybody having to submit or to rebel, we can meet everybody's needs. All right, let's go through the four steps. Can you give us an example, maybe using a scenario? Yes, for example, if uh, I lend a book to somebody and uh, he returns it with drawings and little poems on the side of the pages. I hate that. Yes, I have two ways of expressing that. Why would you tell that person in a few choice words? Uh, what would be a way to express irritation in habitual communication? We could judge the person. It's wrong to have done that. What were you thinking? How can you be so ir disrespectful or irresponsible? So that would be one way of evaluating the situation. When I try to come from a different consciousness, I would simply first express my observation and try to make uh, clear that I am not using any interpretative language in it. Okay, so that's the first component. Neutral, non-evaluative observation. The second component puts us in dire straits because culturally we are actually disconnected from the feelings. Most of the feelings that we use due to our cultural conditioning are actually accusations or judgments. People use words like, I feel attacked, I feel ignored, I feel abused. Those are not what we call feelings. So we want to really support communities and individuals to relearn the vibrant language of feelings. So when I see you return the book, sorry, the book in this way, I feel angry and frustrated. And then immediately I connect my feelings with my own needs. This is sort of the quantum leap of nonviolent communication. Instead of connecting what I'm feeling with you as a cause, I connect my feelings with the actual source of my feelings, which is either my met or unmet need. In this case, the need not met would be a certain need for respect or consideration of, of my property. So I want to relearn the ability to clearly transmit to you my experience without any perception of you having done wrong or deserving punishment for what you have done. If I'm coming in any way with those elements included in my communication, it's unlikely that I will create with you a quality of understanding and connection. So those are the four steps. Yes. Observation, yeah. feeling, need, and request. Request. Yes. Which step do people find the most difficult to learn? I think we're in trouble for all of them. Because first, <laughs> we don't know how to observe without evaluating. Most of what we believe is an observation is actually an evaluation. 
when I saw you being so unkind to me yesterday, is a way that people would describe a situation. It's very subjective. I don't know what you mean by unkind or kind for that matter. Feelings, we're deeply disconnected from our feelings. Our need literacy is extremely low. People don't really connect at that level with themselves. And then we don't know how to do requests. We're very well trained in doing demands from people. The creator of nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg, has written a book titled Nonviolent Communication. There's an astounding, there are many astounding stories in the book, but there's one that comes to mind for me around this. And it's the story of a woman who was in a training. She was in a situation where a man attacked her, I believe with a knife. Is that true? She was, uh, by some confusion in scheduling, she had been left alone in the um, sort of uh, hostel for people with uh, drug addictions in Canada. So she was there and this man came in, sort of really in intense state, and he screamed, I, I, need, I want a bed. And she just said, sorry, sir, there is no beds. And I, I think she looked down to write the address of the other hostel so he could go there. And the next thing she knew, he had jumped over the table put her down on the floor, straddled her, put a knife to her throat and screamed to her, don't lie to me, there is, there, is, there is a bed and some other more choice language. And at that moment, she remembered a joke. We're, we caution people in terms of not using but in front of somebody who is angry. Never put your but in front of an angry person. <laughs> B-U-T. That is a play of words, and I'm over-explaining it, of course. But the the point is that if somebody's angry and you're going to give them explanations, you're only going to escalate the situation. So she stopped herself because that was her first reaction, to to explain to him, to advocate for her, her the truthfulness of her original message. She stopped, and she said, well, I'll try that thing, that NVC thing, which she had learned a week before or so. And uh, we use the following language for empathy. Are you feeling because you have a need? So she just guessed. Sir, are you feeling really angry because you're really wanting people to tell you the truth? I might, and he responds, I still in on her chest and with a knife on her throat. I might be living in the streets. I might not have anything to fall on, but I'm still a human being. You want me to understand that regardless of your circumstances, you want to be respected as a human being. You're right. And, and, we asked her, Marshall asked her later, if she hadn't been terrified about this. And she said no. Then from the moment that she started connecting, even in that precarious, it's hardly a conversation posture, but <laughs> even in that position, she immediately started seeing the human being. And a few minutes later, she, he just relented or she requested him f- to move over. And he sent him on to the other hostel after explaining the people there that he was uh, he was coming and to be aware of his condition. Now, if she had used the but in that moment, she says that most likely he would not be telling the tale. So that's the power of empathy in those difficult situations. It allows us to see anger and rage not as the acts of an evil person, but as a huge opportunity for compassion. This human being is at a loss of resources and is trying in the best way he knows how to call attention to a need that is so unmet and about which he's so hopeless to meet that 
he does the best he can to call attention to that. And if we take the ride, it always leads to a de-escalation. That's Jorge Rubio, a trainer in nonviolent communication. Next, ideas for smoothing out conflict in the workplace and for improving race relations. I'm Suzanne Kreider. This is Peace Talks, Making Peace Day to Day. You're listening to Peace Talks, Making Peace Day to Day, excerpts from our monthly program heard on KUNM in Albuquerque. I'm Suzanne Kreider. Working together, we can make a change. Working together, we can help better things. Over the course of our lives, Americans spend on average 90 to 100,000 hours at work. During that time, things don't always go our way. It's normal for disagreements, personality clashes, and sometimes intense conflict to arise. Often, it's our use of language that makes things worse. We spoke with two experienced workplace mediators, Philip Crump from Santa Fe and Cynthia Olson from Albuquerque, about this. Cynthia, give us some real specific tips about the way to communicate. Rather than, you did this, you were wrong, Mm -hmm. what do folks need to be doing instead? To begin, people really need to listen to one another without judgment if they can pull that one off. We uh, tend to take things personally. We tend to hear the other one as attacking us. Um, And instead, it's better if we can listen, seeking to understand where they're coming from rather than becoming defensive immediately. Because when we feel attacked, we generally either choose to defend ourselves or attack back. And defending ourselves usually sounds like an attack. We blame. If only you had listened to me, Suzanne, you wouldn't be asking that question. Um, So I think it's an attitudinal shift internally to begin with, and then learning how to clarify. Um... People generally make assumptions. I think I know what you mean, but I don't want to show my ignorance or whatever, so I'm not going to ask the question. And so we make an assumption about what we think you mean, and we're almost always wrong. And on the other side of that, I I think people generally don't say clearly what they mean. We cover that up either a lot of times for good reasons. We think we don't want to hurt somebody. We don't want to be vulnerable. I'm not going to tell you what I really mean because I I don't want to make it worse. But instead, we end up talking about things we don't really mean. We have a small studio audience today. Who has a question for our guests? Uh, My name is Anne, and one of the things that I hear all of my colleagues saying uh, when we talk about how to resolve this is there's absolutely no way I could really tell my boss what I'm thinking, even if it's not a bad thing. It's just that that, that my colleagues feel that they would lose their job if they said what they were really thinking, and so we just don't say anything. We just keep everything and pretend that things are fine because the risk of saying something would be too great. So what stands in the way of someone saying what's so for them? What makes it so difficult to tell the truth? One of the things that makes it difficult is we understand that our normal speech, what we learn, many of us, includes a lot of judgment and maybe some blaming, certainly evaluation of what's going on. 
And how that's received by another person oftentimes comes off as you're wrong and I'm right. So how to say what's so, how to speak the truth without blame or judgment is is a key. So instead of saying to an employee, you're, you've been late three times this week. You are so lazy. Why aren't you committed to your job? Instead of saying that, what could they say? They could say, Suzanne, your timesheet shows that you've clocked in between five and uh, ten minutes three days this week. That's a fact. There's no blame or judgment in that. And the second piece is, tell me what's going on for you. It is the policy that all employees are here at 8 o'clock. So then I might respond with, well, my car is broken down or my child is sick or some kind of explanation. Mm -hmm. And then what's your response? And my response would be, for me, when you're late, it's upsetting because our facility starts at 8 o'clock. We have customers at the window at 8 o'clock. Customers get upset, and my boss gets upset. I don't really care if the customers are upset. I have a sick child, and that's more important to me than the customers here. So I understand that sometimes your child is sick. Let's talk about what needs to happen when your child is sick because we, need, we do need to have the windows covered. How should we handle that? What ideas do you have? So that's where the creativity comes back in is just the brainstorming on the problem rather than turning it into you're a bad employee. Right. Philip, you and Cynthia do training programs for risk management for state employees. I'm curious if you all have done any research or evaluation on the impact of your training. We have not systematically. Risk management tells us that the number and severity of claims has diminished. And by claims, you mean? Against the state from employees. There are other programs, and I can talk more specifically about the uh, U.S. Postal Service internal EEO mediation program in which I participate. Uh, It was developed when the post office realized the number and cost of the internal complaints. It was millions and millions and millions of dollars to settle these internal claims. And what they have found, they do extensive evaluation. And what they find is they're saving millions of dollars. They're reducing the number of complaints, and they actually are beginning to produce the inklings of culture change within the Postal Service. What kinds of inklings? Employees understand that they can express themselves what their needs are, and that managers are beginning to listen a little better? It's encouraging because the Postal Service had a reputation, a cultural reputation for violence. Exactly. And so to see that kind of shift in an organizational culture is really encouraging. Mm -hmm. Philip Crump and Cynthia Olson on mediating conflict in the workplace. Martin Luther King said, I refuse to accept the view that mankind is so tragically bound to the starless midnight of racism and war that the bright daybreak of peace and brotherhood can never become reality. I believe that unarmed truth and unconditional love will have the final word. Father, Father, we don't need to.
History is filled with examples of conflict between races. In February, Peace Talks marked Black History Month with a panel exploring an African-American perspective on peaceful race relations. Our guests were Albuquerque City Administrator James Lewis, a University of New Mexico student, Oti Amba Umi, and diversity trainer Tanya Covington. I want to talk about white privilege. When I was about eight years old, I remember being in the back seat of uh, my parents' station wagon, and there was a girl sitting next to me. She was one of my sister's friends, and she was the first African-American I ever remember talking to. And we were driving her to her house. I grew up in a little town in the Midwest called Freeport, Illinois, 26,000. I remember literally driving across train tracks to a part of town I'd never seen. I'd never been there. And I remember asking my mom, is this still Freeport? Mm -hmm. There were little tiny houses that I could tell all of a sudden that this was a place I'd never been and that people who lived here didn't didn't have as much as I had. And I'm curious, what what is it that that white people need to know and begin to see about white privilege? I think first of all, most white people need to um, admit that it, it exists um, and understand what white privilege um, is. For an awful lot of, of uh, whites don't believe that it exists and don't believe that they have any privilege um, in being white. But there are certain things that uh, come to you naturally or come to you easily because of the color of your skin um, that don't come to us. They've been shown studies that have shown and uh, programs that have been done that if two people walk into a store, one white, one black, the security guard is going to follow the black person irregardless um, of whether they do anything wrong or irregardless of what the white person is like. That's a privilege um, that white people that white people have. Most don't know that they have and take it for granted. And uh, that is perpetuated in all different uh, stratas of life, in employment, in uh, government, in, in uh, all different, different ways throughout this country. And so I think that the main thing is that white people need to um, know that it exists and understand it uh, before anything can ever be done about it. James, how about you? Uh, I've had a couple things happen to me that uh, when you talk about uh, white privilege, um, being elected as uh, the only African-American to be elected uh, statewide in the state of New Mexico, I had a chance to go to New York for bond closing. And so we had some bankers to pick us up. Uh, My deputy uh, uh, state treasurer was uh, David King, who was white American. And so we were walking uh, in uh, the uh, airport, and they had a car to come pick us up, and uh, they walked to him, assuming he is Mr. Lewis the Treasurer, and walked right by me. And Tanya, you do diversity training both in your work for the YWCA and in your own company, Peacemaker Consulting. What kinds of experiences come up in the diversity training, and do you often find resistance in your workshops? Um, There's always uh, a lot of resistance um, around any sort of diversity training, mainly because in this country, uh, we don't talk about race. 
A lot of people um, are taught that we're not supposed to talk about it. They're uncomfortable talking about it. Um, there's actually even a perception that talking about it will make it worse. Um, and so all of that has to be overcome. What I find is that lots of times people come into the training or the dialogue very, very hesitantly. They don't come out the other side that way. Usually people at the end of it find that there is such a relief of finally being able to talk about um, the elephant in the living room that we were supposed to pretend wasn't there at all. Uh, the other thing that happens so very often is in doing something where we actually have a, have a chance to dialogue, people find out that they have so much more in common um, than they did diff- different, and they're usually surprised, and that's usually a great comfort to people. They find that they're actually uh, far more able to talk to people from different cultures easily than they thought they thought they would be able to be. And uh, most people find that it's a very enjoyable experience, even though they were very hesitant coming in. Oh, Tiamo, what's your experience been in diversity training? I went to, I've attended a few, maybe a class or two. Um, um, sharing experiences might, is a little um, hesitant at times because sometimes they expect you as an individual, as an African-American, to speak for the whole African, entire African-American race. And as an individual, you know, it's a, it seems like a heavy responsibility to do because you're only one person and you don't share, you share a lot of the similar experiences, but you have your own to define. So sometimes that that's an issue where they expect you to, as you know, you're educating them, they expect you to know everything and represent the African-American race as sharing that experience and perspective. What I find out is once you're in there, you know, you've opened yourself up. But when everyone leaves, it's kind of like no one talks about it anymore. And it's like that's why we have to keep having these continued trainings. And, you know, people ask why. And I find that that's an issue that once you leave, it's kind of like you left everything back in the room and no one's talking about it anymore. They're just kind of going along their daily lives. So it's got to be a continuous thing of discussion. And and that's pretty much it. So are y'all hopeful or hopeless about race relations? Well, I'm a very optimistic person. I'm I'm a very positive person, so I'm very hopeful. Uh, Either we're going to have to get along uh, or, you know, we will perish like fools. What needs to change? Well, I think we have to continue to work at it. It's not going to be easy, um, but I think that there has been um, some inroads made as we look at the employment. There were sector jobs that uh, you know we we were chair porters. Uh, we did a lot of maintenance, uh, but uh, there are a lot of other opportunities that have opened up to us. So, but they got to continue to open up, and we got to continue to work at it. So, um, I, I just feel very hopeful that uh, this type of dialogue that we're having right here, that as people listen in, uh, that they will become more educated, that they understand that black history is just not one month. It is every day. Uh, we live it. They have to understand it. We have to understand uh, our, our neighbors. Uh, if you're not African-American, so we have to li- learn to live together, and I think that's what it's all about. Well, Tiamba, are you hopeful or hopeless? I'm, I'm very hopeful. I think things have gotten a lot better as far as since slavery, you could say. We're no longer in shackles and chains, and I think things are looking hopeful. Um, I've heard other opinions. People think that race relations are getting worse. Um, but personally, I believe that things are getting better as long as we continue to have this awareness of 
of race relations. And it's hard to get past, you know, just skin color and stereotypes. And, and you know, that's why we continue to have these these issues and whatnot. But you have to realize that, you know, we are all humans. We are the human race. And that we all, you know, have love for each other and respect each other. And we need to do, keep continue doing that. Tanya Covington? Hopeful or hopeless? I'm I'm always uh, very hopeful, uh, mainly because I feel like we live in a country where people have proven that they will change anything that they decide needs to be changed. And I'm hopeful that people look at racial race relations in this country and know that there needs to be a change. I think that individually all it would take is if tomorrow everyone decides that they're going to begin to be conscious of prejudice everywhere it is and not participate in it. And I think that can be done. And what would that look like if I'm not participating? Um, if you're con- if you're conscious of it, then um, you begin to see the the things that are that are going on. You begin to see the kind of white privilege that you have. Um, you speak up when you see injustice. Uh, there's a very old saying that says, um, "Evil evil persists when good men do nothing." Uh, I think all we have to do is decide that we're going to be all be the good people who do something. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and today. Tanya Covington, Otiamba Umi, and James Lewis, offering an African-American perspective on improving race relations. Next, understanding domestic violence and treatment programs that might help those extreme conflicts. This is Peace Talks, making peace day to day. I'm Suzanne Kreider with more of Peace Talks, making peace day to day. Local papers and newscasts all too often feature painful stories of domestic violence that end in severe injury or death. What are the warning signs of impending danger? Can treatment save relationships that have started down this path? We spoke with Barbara Lambert, who directs a treatment program called Choosing Harmony in Gallup, New Mexico, and Ann Cass, a retired family court judge, who talked about the results of family court testing for domestic violence predictors. The data they collected showed that there were sort of two major categories of offenders. One were the um, males who were these sort of dependent, inadequate personality types. Um, And then on the other end of the spectrum, you had the um, sadistic, aggressive sociopaths. Uh, and the conclusion that they reached was that with respect to the, the sociopathic personality disorder, psychology doesn't have any cure for them. We don't know what to do with them. Uh, it seems that about the only thing that makes them any better is time, uh, meaning that when they hit somewhere between 50 and 60, their energy levels go down and they don't have the energy to uh, be as violent, uh, aggressively violent to other people. Um, the other kind of person, the dependent, inadequate personality, um, those people are actually pretty amenable to treatment, um, long-term therapeutic intervention. So the best thing you can try to do is to stay away from the sadistic, aggressive, sociopathic personality disorder. And let me tell you, those people are really, by and large, very charming. They are oh. typically very – they are verbally bright. 
And it will be very difficult to identify them because they are so charming. You wouldn't have a clue that the person that you're dealing with is someone capable of incredible violence towards you. Um, But also with the the dependent and adequate personality that you talk about, it's still the most dangerous time for a woman is when she leaves at that moment and shortly thereafter. And that's from both parties, probably more so from the person who's the psychopath or the sociopath. Um, With a dependent and inadequate personality, we're talking about that attachment problem that I mentioned earlier. Um, I need something from you, and if you take it away, then I'm going to fall apart because now I'll be alone. And I'm going to do everything humanly possible, which is the, the purpose of the honeymoon stage in the cycle of violence, to get you back so that you can meet my needs because I'm not capable of meeting my own. I never learned how to do that. So tell me what goes on in the treatment program. What do you all talk about and what do you do? When they first get into the program, I ask them to tell me the story and to tell the group the story about the incident that got them there so that everybody's on the same page. And it sort of takes away that terminal uniqueness that people have. Um, Most people are embarrassed to be in a group. I don't want to be because I'm not like those people. But then as soon as they tell their story... And I ask others to raise their hands about whether or not they did something similar or if there were drugs or alcohol involved in their incidents. It takes some of that terminal uniqueness away, and then they can start interacting with one another. I have a lot of people ask me, why 52 weeks? And for me, 52 weeks is important. During the first three months, most people, whether they're men or women, are minimizing, denying, and blaming Um, to their partner what happened, if only she'd. It doesn't make any difference what it is. It was her fault. From about four to six months, they're quieter. They're starting to take in more information. They're starting to pay attention a little bit better. They're focusing. They're more relaxed in the setting. From six months to 12 months, we have people asking questions, practicing some of the techniques that are going on, mentoring the new folks who are coming into the class, saying things like, I used to be just like you when I got here, but I did this. So they're beginning to take responsibility. For me, anything less than six months simply doesn't work as well as it could. You need to have the length of time so that people can break through the denial and say, yeah, I did this. It's very shaming and embarrassing to come into an open public setting like that and say, I beat my wife or I pushed her through a window. So it's important that they have some time to feel safe in the group so they can start talking with one another about what happened. And what is the valuation showing? Are you all collecting data or have programs in California seen what the results are? That's a great question. And right now there's very little data on the efficacy of a 52-week program. What are you seeing anecdotally? What kind of stories could you share in terms of people's successes? In California, I had a couple of the women call me up and say that they were so glad that their husband had gone through the program. There were tremendous improvements in their behavior. I've gotten Christmas cards from some of the men saying that they were really glad that they'd come to the class. If you're asking if this is is a cure, it's not a cure. I can't guarantee that someone will be nonviolent after coming through the class sessions. I can tell you that during the class... Typically what happens is is the physical abuse diminishes significantly. But along with that, other forms of non-physical violence escalate. 
the verbal abuse, isolation, using children as weapons, male privilege, a lot of those things continue to escalate, which is another reason why I need a 52-week time period to help them understand it isn't just physical when we're being violent with one another. Let's talk about some of the early warning signs. Um, when I was in my 20s, I was dating a young man who, um, at, at times, I would get really angry with him. And there was an incident where I got really angry with him. And um, I'm not proud to say this, but um, he was facing me, and I was yelling at him. And I remember a point in my mind where I thought, you know, I've seen in the movies where a woman is angry and she slaps the guy. And I remember having that thought and thinking, well, he deserves it. I have a right to slap him. So I looked at him, and and just out of the blue, I slapped his face. And it was really frightening to see his reaction because he was totally shocked. And his immediate reaction was to grab my arms. He grabbed them, and he held me very tight. And we were deadlocked in the stare. And I realized that I could be in a lot of trouble and didn't know how he was going to respond. And he took a deep breath, and he released his hands, and he turned away from me. So I have a couple questions about that. One is to talk about the impact that the media does have on our behavior and how I felt like I had a right. I felt like it would be some sort of dramatic thing to slap this man. Anne? Well, I mean, the the media um, models all sorts of things for us it gives us it gives us the the visual model and the verbal models for how to deal with disagreements and and the sensible way to deal with disagreements is to is to talk them through that uh, is not very dramatic um, and it it's not going to sell very many products and after all that's what most of the media is about is selling products and therefore getting viewers uh, but that's the way our media works. I mean, you look at all of the, even even the the Lara News Hour. Uh, their way of dealing with a disagreement is to have two people who disagree. They sit next to each other and they interrupt and shout and yell at each other. Um, and when you're all done, you don't have, you can't judge what's going on with either one of them. That is what's modeled everywhere. Right. In popular media. Right. So there's no gray area. There's no gray. So, Barbara, what would you have recommended if you'd heard a young couple tell that story? Do we need treatment? I don't know so much as that you need treatment. It bothers me that you make a statement that I had, I had felt like I had the right to slap. We don't have a right to hit anybody. We have a right to defend ourselves. We don't have a right to aggress. I think it was a good wake-up call to sit down and talk to each other about what just happened here and how frightening this became. I've seen friends with black eyes and said, what's that about? And they've said, oh, I walked into a door. And then there's a tendency to just let that go, to not really push the issue, to not want to get involved. How can we all as society help survivors feel safe to leave? Personally, I think we need to take our heads out of the sand and call a spade a spade. A black eye is not, I ran into a door. So we need to say, I notice you have a black eye. What can I do to help? How is it that you're being hurt? Um, Give somebody the opportunity to talk. Let them know, even if they want to deny that there's anything going on in the relationship, that you're there for support. And if they need to talk, that they can. 
If they need to put things like copies of medical papers or social security cards or an extra set of clothes for her and the kids, that your place is willing to do that, that you'd be happy to find out information about the local shelter or have someone from the local shelter come and talk to her. Um, If we don't say this is a crime, and this affects more than just the man and the wife, okay, or the two intimate partners, then we collude with the batterer and say this is okay, and we tell her she has to stay. Barbara Lambert directs the Choosing Harmony Domestic Violence Treatment Program in Gallup, New Mexico. Ann Cass spent 18 years as a family court judge in New Mexico. We started our program with a story about peacemaking. Let's end it with another one. Here's New Mexico storyteller Leah Alexander. There was a blind man who lived in a little hut at the edge of the village with his sister. He liked to sit out in the sunshine, and he always knew who was coming by. He knew the footsteps of everyone in the village. The people in the village loved the blind man. They thought he was wise And they would talk to him and tell him in their problems and sometimes get advice from him. His sister got married. She married a man who was a great hunter. He came from a different village, and he came to live with them. The blind man was happy for his sister, and he was glad that there would be somebody to put food on their table. He said to his new brother-in-law, Oh, take me hunting with you. I've always wanted to go. Well, the hunter, who was a young man, thought, What could a blind man do on a hunt? But the blind man begged to go, and finally he agreed. So he said, Tomorrow we will go and trap some birds. They left early in the morning the next day, carrying traps, and they walked through the forest. The forest... Near where they lived, the blind man knew very well he walked there often, but when they got into the deeper woods, he took his brother-in-law's arm. Still, he knew so much about what was going on around them. He said, there are warthogs over there, and soon they passed them. And then he said, shh, walk quietly. There's a lioness asleep with her cubs. We don't want to wake her. The young man wondered how the blind man could know this because soon they passed the lions. The blind man said only, I cannot see, but I know. They walked until they came to where the forest was low and marshy, and the hunter knew that birds would come there. First he put his trap down and covered it well, And then a distance away, he helped the blind man set his trap. But the hunter didn't bother to cover it too well. They went home then and came back the next day to see what they had trapped. First they went to the hunter's trap, and he pulled out a small, nondescript-looking brown bird and put it in his pouch. And then they went to the blind man's trap. The hunter could see there was a bird inside, and when he pulled it out, it was a very special bird. It was large, and it had long tail feathers of beautiful colors. The hunter thought when he saw it, 
Oh, this would make a wonderful gift for my wife. And so he took the colorful bird and put it in his own pouch, handing the small brown bird to the blind man. The blind man felt the bird. He said nothing and put it in his pouch. And they started for home. They were tired part way, and they sat under a tree to rest. And the hunter thought, The blind man, my brother-in-law, he's well thought of. People think he's wise. I'm going to ask him a question that I've been burning to ask for such a long time. I want to hear the answer to. So he said to the blind man, Tell me, brother-in-law, why is it that people fight and quarrel, and there's so much strife. The blind man was silent, and he seemed to be thinking, and then he turned his face towards the young man. The young man felt as if those sightless eyes were boring into him, and the blind man said, people fight and quarrel, and there is strife, because they treat each other the way you have just treated me. The young man's face burned. He felt ashamed. He reached into his pouch. He took out the colorful bird and handed it to the blind man and then took the small brown bird and put it in in his own pouch. Then they got ready to leave. They stood, and before they started walking, the hunter said, Tell me then, brother-in-law, how is it that when people quarrel, they can make up and become friends again? The blind man smiled, and he said, They make up and become friends again because they're kind to each other, as you just were to me. There's more about each of the original programs from which these excerpts were drawn at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio, written as one word, dot com. Peace Talks is a production of Good Radio Shows Incorporated, a nonprofit media organization. Information about how you can support the work of Good Radio Shows, Inc. is also on the web at goodradioshows.org. That's goodradioshows.org. Original music by Ali Adelman and George Coynes. Our producer and engineer is Paul Ingalls. I'm Suzanne Kreider. Thanks for listening.